Andrew Trichinado is a researcher at University of St. Andrews and at the University of Michigan Law School. He wrote a book about the legal culture of the American founding fathers. Thank you, Andrew, for joining me today. I would like to discuss shortly about the two revolutions that occurred in America and in France at the end of the 18th century. We know that both shared some common elements. One is for sure the influence of the philosophers of the Enlightenment. In which fields philosophy has marked the new legal orders proposed and imposed by the revolutions, and these philosophical influences have been the same in America and in France. Thank you for inviting me, Emanuele. Uh, your question certainly opens a whole landscape of related issues. I would say that there is a wide literature on the ideological origins of the Atlantic revolutions, and Enlightenment philosophy frequently features very prominently in it. However, this is not necessarily the case if one looks at the libraries of the revolutionaries themselves. Many of them were voracious readers, frequently drawn to early modern literature and especially to French 16th century jurisprudence. Now, though it may sound surprising, this is true even of Immanuel Kant's famous essay, Was ist Aufklärung, uh, which was first published in 1784, because uh, that essay is intimately tied to the 16th century work of Michel de Montaigne. Now, the essay is opened by a compelling indictment of cultural passivity that closely echoes Montaigne's pugnacious dismissal of received knowledge, which he epitomized by his understanding of the Coutume. There is no doubt that Montaigne's dismissal made a lasting impression on European literature. It helped define a certain attitude towards power that became particularly critical in those readers of Montaigne, who also happened to be readers of 16th century anti-tyrannical literature. Think, for instance, of John Milton. When Milton warned against the existence of a, and I am quoting, double tyranny of custom from without and blind affections within, end quote, his tenure of kings and magistrates was justifying the prosecution and execution of a king, Charles I. The words of Milton's indictment still echo a century later, and you can hear them ringing, for instance, in Thomas Jefferson's prof profession of, and I'm quoting once again, eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of men, end quote. Now, Jefferson, we know, was a reader of Milton. He was a reader of Montaigne. He was a reader of anti-tyrannical literature, and especially of a French 16th century tract entitled Vindice contra Tyrannos. He was a reader, I would say, that felt the constitutional power of reading. And he certainly was not alone. John Adams, another founding father, was equally persuaded of reading's constitutional purpose, and he was drawn to the same cluster of works and problems that compelled Jefferson's attention. 
Adams actually wrote an unfinished series of essays on questions of politics and law entitled Discourses on Davila that took the 16th century history of the French Wars of Religion by Enrico Caterino Davila as their basis. Now, Emanuele, you may ask, why are these 18th century American revolutionaries interested in 16th century jurisprudence? I would say that it is because the wars of religion opened a crisis like no other before, one so violent that it shattered what was known about power, its nature, and its limitations. This is why that literature was capable of raising questions of a constitutional magnitude that lingered on, not simply in scholarly debates, but in the actual life of political communities and legal systems. I can think of no clearer example than the one offered, in this case, by a French revolutionary, Nicolas de Condorcet. Starting in 1790, Condorcet began publishing abridgments, or paraphrases, of some of the greatest works of legal and constitutional scholarship in the Western canon. He gave his series a beautiful title, The Bibliothèque de l'Homme Public and argued in its general introduction that legal education provided the main pathway to the democratic exercise of sovereignty. Do you know which work features prominently in the first volume of the series, appearing between the abridgments of Aristotle's Politics and Machiavelli's Prince? A highly engaged and constitutionally oriented abridgment, or rather paraphrase, of Jean Baudin's masterpiece, Le Six Livres de la République. This abridgment has absolutely no hesitation in presenting Baudin's 16th century treatise on published law as the foundational masterpiece of a restrained and limited conception of sovereignty. I think it is no coincidence that both Jefferson and Adams possessed copies of Baudin and read his doctrine of sovereignty as a gateway to constitutionalism. This is really fascinating, Andrew. I have another question for you. In America, as in France, the revolution opened the road to economic liberalism. We usually think that the two first terms of the French motto, liberté, égalité, fraternité, I mean liberty and equality, express the legal innovations necessary to spark the new capitalist society. Do you think that the American Constitution and the French Civil Code played the same role in easing the establishment of a capitalist economy? This is another insightful question, Emanuele, and it makes me immediately think of Alexis de Tocqueville. Now, uh, when uh, he publishes in 1835 his first democracy in America... Tocqueville claims that the establishment of the democratic regime in America, constitutionally democratic regime in America, was not only favored, but it directly depended on the equality of social conditions that existed in colonial, in colonial America. There were multiple causes behind this equality, and Tocqueville spends a considerable portion of his treaties investigating them, but the one uh, on which Tocqueville focus, focuses mostly on, and the one which I would like to recall in our conversation, concerns the reform of inheritance law. 
which Tocqueville eventually claims is the foundation of any constitutional regime. More precisely uh, still, Tocqueville focuses on the abolition of primogeniture. Now, primogeniture required that if a landowner had not made a will directing who should get his property, the oldest son would get a whole estate. And this spurred the rise of landed families. A series of legislative reforms in the states, in the federated states in the aftermath of independence, abolished institutes like primogeniture and transformed the social fabric of the different societies, American societies, and it was on this renewed egalitarian fabric that the federal constitution eventually laid its foundations. What is particularly intriguing and raises the question of Tocqueville's sources is that in the case of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the abolition of primogeniture and more generally the reform of inheritance law is directly tied to the agency uh, and the legislative action of Thomas Jefferson. So in this case, uh, there are legislative transformations that occur prior to the adoption of the Constitution that have a constitutional effect in molding uh, the fabric of society in a way that not only favors the establishment of the democratic constitution, but also produces a number of economic consequences that your question uh, pointed to. If we turn our attention to France, but always keep our feet rooted in the Tocquevillian analysis, despite the presence of physiocratic doctrines, which is something upon which Tocqueville himself comments upon, Unequality of social conditions is the main characteristic uh, of the French social arrangement. This is clear in both the first Democracy in America, the one published in 1835. It's clear also in the second one, published in 1840, but it is particularly clear in the Ancien Régime. And there, Tocqueville has a suggestion for people who wish to understand uh, how the revolution and the consequences of the revolution, so even the, the Code Civil, the 1804 Code Civil, how these events impacted on social life. And his suggestion is considérez-y le mariage. Consider, look at marriages. And this is one of the most fascinating pages, I think, in Tocqueville, because it's a page of comparative law, and he looks at marriages in France and looks at marriages in England and shows how what marriages that are conceivable and possible in England, marriages between people belonging to different social echelons and different social classes are simply inconceivable in post-revolutionary France. And it is particularly fascinating to think of this comparison in terms of literary comparison. One could read Almost in parallel texts, Stendhal's Les Rouges et les Noirs and uh, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which are both centered on the possibilities or impossibilities of marriage between people belonging to different classes. So both in the case of America and in the case of France, I would say that there are events, conditions, and legal principles that affect the constitutional and economic arrangement of society that predate both the Constitution and the 
and the policy. Thank you, Andrew. This is again very inspiring. And also we have to observe that sometimes if a lawyer wants to understand the changes imposed to the society by the great changes in law, it's better to look at literature than to look only at legal treatises. But I have a last question for you. Uh, what about the third term of uh, the French Revolution, the fraternité? That is today the solidarity and the social concern of the legal system. It emerged shortly during the Republican period in France and later during subsequent revolutionary moments in Europe in the 19th century. America kept being radically individualist instead, or were there movement claiming for more solidarity? This is another great question. Uh, and once again, it leads me to think of a text and an author. In this case, I would say Anna Arendt and her 1963 essay entitled On Revolution. In fact, I would even claim that your question is to a certain extent a variation of the question that pitted the American and French revolutions against each other according to her interpretation of the two events. While Arendt saw, to give a summary account of her book, the French Revolution as being essentially concerned with liberation from social oppression, she argued that the American Revolution was at least primarily fought to constitute liberty. This has a number of consequences in her analysis, but one of the most unexpected is that she claims that the so-called American dream that looms so large in our collective imagination was not the dream of the founding fathers. She argues that the American dream is a dream that is born out of poverty, a poverty that existed in America even in the 18th century and that produced some of the legislative consequences that we discussed earlier, but that became impactful, especially in the 19th and then in the 20th century. One can think of the Great, of the great Depression as being a turning point in the predominance of the American dream as a political myth. What Arendt focuses on is the idea that freedom although it can only come, and I'm quoting, to those whose needs have been fulfilled, it also escapes those who are bent upon living for their desires. This is an idea that leads us to recognize that relationships of solidarity in the America of the 18th century pertain more to a moral and not so much to, to a legislative discipline. And there is something of very peculiar in the culture of the United States even today, as the, and that is the idea of compassion. It is something that we don't find as much, for instance, in Italy or in other parts of Europe. Compassion is a sentiment that, once again, to quote Anarant, abolishes the distance, the worldly space between men, where political matters, the whole realm of human affairs, are located. And because of this, it remains, Arendt claims, politically speaking, irrelevant and without consequence. It is a moral fact. It is not a political or constitutional fact. And here Arendt uh, follows your, your advice and turns to Melville and to Billy Budd 
And she notes with Melville and Billy Budd that compassion is incapable of establishing lasting institutions. Now, in France, this relationship between compassion and institutions is somewhat different, at least if one thinks of the preface to Les Miserables, which which poses the, um, the problem in very stark terms. So long as there shall exist by virtue of law and custom, one almost hears an echo of the ex omnis populi, decrees of damnation pronounced by society artificially creating hells amid the civilization of earth and adding the element of human fate to divine destiny, so long as the three great problems of the century, the degradation of man through pauperism, the corruption of woman through hunger, the crippling of children through lack of light are unsolved, so long as social asphyxia is possible in any part of the world, in other words, and with the still wider significance, so long as ignorance and poverty exist on earth, books of the nature of Les Miserables cannot fail to be of use. So, uh, here Hugo establishes a, a stricter correlation between compassion and, and reform. Thank you, Andrew. It was fascinating. I think uh, studying the revolution brings us to the edge of the law in some sense and brings us to get out of the domain of the law to enter in what it is regulated. It was used to be regulated by religion and today should be regulated by the moral. So thank you very much. It was uh, a useful discussion and uh, see you next time. Thank you very much for having me, Emanuele. Talk to you soon.